We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Esther chapter 8, and uh, we'll pick up there this morning. Chords here in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Remember, Haman has just been put to death on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which had taken from which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, uh, the Agagite, in the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Remember, he had schemed to have them put to death. Verse 4, And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, Esther, and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Now the king's scribes were called at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province, province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. No one in the day, no one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 20 month, which is in the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, 
and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. And the wonderful outcome that was, uh, of course, all God's working. Interesting, God's name is not mentioned at all here in Esther, but uh, his hand, as it often says, uh, said, is at work uh, through these individuals. So bless the, the word of the Lord. All right, very good. Well, let's turn our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, I've identified the sermon under the title, The Sermon on the Plateau, as some have called it, with blessings and woes that I will highlight as we go through the section here after we get uh, kind of started. Um, Some also have called this a sermon on the level place. This may, in fact, be the same as the Sermon on the Mount, which may confuse you, but the situation is something like this. Jesus went up to the mountain, as we'll read, and uh, prayed, chose his disciples early in the morning, and then probably descended, uh, based on the geography of what we believe uh, is there, descended some uh, level down in uh, elevation to a place on the slope where there was a decent place to have a meeting with uh, probably thousands of people as he was preaching to his disciples and to the gathered crowd in uh, what we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll mention something else about that in just a few moments, but uh, more commonly uh, known by the opening words of blessing that are given in the Beatitudes, as they call them. The the early part of chapter 6 is really just continued on with chapter 4 and 5 began speaking about Jesus' teaching his itinerancy, his, his miracles, calling people to follow him. And uh, then it shifts gears at verse 20. Really, the verses we'll look at are preparatory for it. And then verse 20 is the beginning of this lengthy sermon all the way through the end of chapter 6, verse number 49. And the most commonly known part of this is the Beatitudes, verse 20 and 20 through 23, which are the you know statements, blessed are you, Uh, and we'll go through those. Sometimes these uh, Beatitudes are called by the fancy name macarisms. And you might think, well, what does that have to do? What is is that macaroni and cheese or whatever is that? Well, macarism is a a rare term from the Greek word makarios, which is the word that's used that, that is written by Luke and also by Matthew. That means blessed. That is the word in Greek that Uh, you would use to express the word blessed these four times. So makarios is where we get this word makarism from. They're ascriptions or assignments of blessing. They're not wishes, they're not mere hopes, but they are certainties from heaven upon those people who are characterized as described, and we'll look at that again uh, in a moment. Some of these are quite well known, particularly from the longer list in Matthew's gospel. Matthew has eight Uh, of these blessings, and here we only have four of them Luke has chosen to record, or if it was on a different occasion, 
Uh, perhaps that's what the Lord focused on and ex- saying and explaining. Each makes a statement that a certain kind of person is blessed because a good thing will become theirs in the future, and this blessing is from the Lord. But first, let's go back to verse number, um, let's see, 17, is it? Uh, No, we actually have to go back. We have to go back to uh, the earlier part where it's in verse number, we looked at 6 actually through 11 where they were, uh, were healed in the Sabbath and there was all that controversy. And then uh, it was verse 12 that I wanted to begin us with here. And uh, it says this in verse 12, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. So he really coins this phrase apostles. So they are not merely disciples, although sometimes we'll call them the twelve disciples. They're really the twelve apostles, which indicates that they're specially commissioned. They are sent by the Lord, authorized by him to uh, do his work and even to carry out miracles, ministry, and things like that. So here they are, Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Prior to doing this, Jesus spent, all night in prayer to God. He was making a critical selection that would impact the future of the entire church. For the cross to turn out as it was designed, he also had to select one of those 12 to be with him who would betray him. And I think he knew that that would be the case ahead of time. He certainly did know By John 13, one of you will betray me, and he knew who it was by then, but I think he knew now as well that in order to fulfill Scripture, there had to be one who would share his meals with him and then lift up his heel against him. Now, when we read this, I think, if you're like me, you cannot help but think that if the Lord Jesus had to pray like this before a major decision, He in his perfect humanity, how much more do we need to pray before we decide to do different things in our lives, in our sinfulness, in our finiteness? If the Lord had to pray, so much more we have to pray. We often forget to pray, though, don't we? Yeah. Let's, Let's resolve one of our resolutions perhaps this year, this coming year. Let's pray. Just pray. Pray more. Pray together. Pray over decisions. Pray before you say stuff. <laughs> you know, pray so that God will guide you. Clearly a, a, an important lesson there. Now, the 12 are listed. We uh, see Simon called Peter. He's always at the head of the list in, in all the different lists in the, of the apostles. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, John doesn't have a particular list, as I recall, or whole list. They're kind of sp- sprinkled throughout. And then in the book of Acts, Simon Peter is there. You have Andrew, you have James, you have John, Philip. And then you have this fellow named Bartholomew. He's a little bit of a question mark because 
we, we don't see him everywhere else listed. When, when John, we see a guy named Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Now, do you remember what Simon, just as an illustration of how they would do names, do you remember what Simon is sometimes called? Simon Bar-Jonah. Okay? Bar is the Aramaic of Ben, which is son of, and then Jonah. So Simon Peter is the son of Jonah. So Bar-Jonah would not be like a first name. Likewise, I think Bartholomew is not a first name. It's a family name, Bar-Ptolemy or Bar-Ptolemy. Do you know that name Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y from your history, like the Ptolemies who ruled in Egypt and that whole thing that after Alexander the Great, his kingdom split four ways and one of them was ruled by the Ptolemies. Well, here you have Bar-Ptolemy, and so it is likely although I'm not 100% sure, but likely that this fellow is actually Nathaniel Bar-Talmai. We know him as Nathaniel from John's Gospel. Then we have Matthew, who's also known as Levi, Thomas, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. And then uh, you see here in verse 15, you see Simon the Zealot. In another place in the Scripture, you'll see a fellow named Simon the Canaanite. And you might think, hmm, what does that mean, a Canaanite? Canaanite, I thought those were bad people. It's not the kind of Canaanite we're talking about. That's C-A-N-A-A-N, Canaan, like the Canaanites back from Abraham's time. That's not the spelling that's used here. It's Cana, like the wedding in Canaanite, C-A-N-A-I-T-E. Now, some have suggested that maybe he is from Cana of Galilee, where the water was turned to wine at that wedding. But others have suggested this comes from an Aramaic term that means zealot. Well, he's Simon the Zealot, so that works out perfectly, doesn't it? So there's no confusion, really. You just have to look into it a little bit deeper. Then you have Judas, who is the son of James. And I'm sure Judas appreciates being identified as the son of James because he doesn't want to be identified as the man from Iscariot, from Cariot, Iscariot, uh, Judas, that was the betrayer. Judas, the son of James, is also known by his other names, Labius Thaddeus, or Labius Thaddeus. Okay? Back in those days, in a multicultural, multilingual milieu in which they existed, it was very common for them to have multiple names. You'd have a Hebrew name, Levi, a Greek name, Matthew. Uh, You'd have Simon or you'd have Peter. You'd have Judas or you'd have Labias. No big deal for them. We kind of think it's strange. You're like, well, what's your name? You know, just give me one name. Well, maybe the person has uh, gone by several names. I reflect uh, just briefly as we think about this section of text 12 to 16, on the privilege of these men to be called directly by Jesus to be apostles. Do you, can you imagine the privilege of that? But also, I reflect upon the wasted privilege of Judas Iscariot. Wasted. Near the Lord for three plus years, personally selected by him, saw the miracles, heard the teaching, saw the the blessed Savior, saw the the perfect life that he lived, learned, should have learned, didn't learn. His nature took over, 
he was a thief and all of that sort of thing and a wasted privilege. May I remind us that the Lord chose us in a similar manner to how he chose these apostles. Look at John chapter 15, if you would, for a moment, please. Just a few pages forward in your Bible in John chapter 15 and verse number 16. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, you might say, well, that's just the apostles there he's talking to. Well, I think we can easily extend that to those who are not of the world, but in the world, all of us throughout the whole, all the ages since then. But if you shall require more proof, I will supply it. 2 Thessalonians, please, chapter 2 and verse number 13. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse number 13. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica many years later, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then one more, just reading the plain text of Scripture here, not trying to make a big deal about it or big argument or get into some Calvinism and Arminianism debate here, but it's just what the text of the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, "...coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious." Speaking of him, we're coming to him and we're attached to him who's chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones. You know, we've been placed there by God. So, chosen by God, just like the apostles were. Um, Don't waste the privilege like Judas did. Um, Obviously, Judas was chosen for a different purpose. He was the son of perdition. He had to be chosen in order for the, uh, the, the rejection of Christ or the betrayal of Christ and his rejection to be fully implemented by, according to God's plan, but you too have the opportunity to receive the grace gift of God and salvation and find out later on, oh yeah, God did set his grace upon me and chose me, even though you don't understand that perhaps now. Uh, that's indeed uh, how, how it works out. So after making the selection here, the Lord came down to the level place with these apostles, these uh, special disciples, and, and taught the multitude. And this sermon here is, starts in verse number 20, but read 17 to 19 with me. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place, the plateau, where with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of, of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. So picture the scene now. The Lord's coming down with his apostles. So he's got himself, 12. And then it talks about a bunch of disciples and then a great multitude of people. So there were people who were followers of his, very close followers, the apostles. Then there were general followers, disciples. You know, we'd call them Christians today. 
And then there were those that were just kind of coming to view, to listen to this remarkable preacher and find out what he's saying, and the Lord may be using that as an opportunity to invite them to become his followers as well, as we would expect. And so uh, he teaches them. Now, back to the question, is this different, a ser- different sermon than the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it could be. Others suggest it is not. Some say very you know, strongly it's the same one. Um, the answer to the question doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference as to whether uh, this is the same as the Sermon on the Mount or it was a sermon given at a different place at a slightly different time. Uh, Our daily walk with Christ is not impacted by the answer to that question. But we do expect that an itinerant preacher, when he goes around, he's going to preach a lot of similar things, right? Right? You know, it's not exactly like he's on the stump like a politician, but, you know, if you're, if you're the staff of a politician going with him to all his campaign stops, you probably hear the same thing a thousand times in all kinds of variations. For a Christian preacher who's, who's itinerant and doing so frequently, can't expect him to make new material all the time. Now, of course, you might say, well, Jesus is a little special. <laughs> he knows everything. He's very clever, you know, much more than a regular preacher. Well, that's true, but here's the thing. The reality is that there is not or are not an infinite number of truths that God has to teach us. How many things are, if there were an infinite number of truths, could we even have a hope to absorb them? We are finite, and the book that we have in front of us shows us, in fact, we see a lot of repetition in here, don't we? The same kind of principles over and over. For example, you can find sowing and reaping in several places. You find salvation by grace through faith all over the place. You know, you find God's grace everywhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You, all kinds of things you hear, you see parables that teach the same truths, you know, Old Testament accounts of history that teach us similar things. There is not an infinite number of truths that God has for us to grasp. He knows well our frame that we are very finite And consequently, there are a small number of guiding truths. So the Lord of necessity, as he went to different places, is going to be teaching a lot of the same things. You know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here offering the kingdom. You've got to repent and turn away from your sin. Believe the gospel. Be born again. All those sorts of things. Simple kind of smaller list. Consequently, these small number of guiding truths are nothing like the body of federal law in the United States, which now runs to a total of about 200,000 printed pages. See if you can read that and understand it and obey all of it. Uh, It's really out of place. It's ridiculous. Biblical principles can be boiled down into statements like the Ten Commandments or How about this one? Love God and love your neighbor. On those two hang pretty much all the law and the prophets, the Lord said, right? And I would argue probably most of the New Testament as well. You love God and you love your neighbor. How do you love God? Well, he tells you how in the New Testament. How do you love your neighbor? Well, he tells you how in the New Testament. Even if you take the entire Bible and treat every bit of it as if it were unique, you know, every sentence is a different truth. Well, it's not, but suppose you did. Even your longest study Bible is only 2,000 pages. That's nothing compared to 200,000. And so it's a good reason why we should have mastery over the Bible. It's not outside of our reach. 
We should be able to read the Bible. We should be able to read it frequently, read over it again. For me, I'm just about done with uh, Matthew, uh, and that will put me through almost the entire New Testament again in the last, like, four or five months. And uh, so, and we're studying in Luke. That's the only other book that I haven't finished reading through uh, for this round. But I encourage you to read through the scriptures, and hopefully next week I'll have our annual scripture uh, reading uh, pages out there on the table for you to grab if you use those or use another scripture plan uh, to read your Bible. But as was often the case here too, there were needy people in the crowd and the Lord helped them with their diseases, with their demons. Uh, That would certainly get their attention, Um, but it also authenticated the messenger and his message and it also showed that he had power to forgive sins. Remember that from Luke chapter 5? The Lord has power to forgive sins, and you know that because he has power to tell somebody to rise up from his bed and walk who cannot walk. But also, unfortunately, this was a distraction from the more important matters of teaching about people's spiritual health. The Lord is more concerned about people's spiritual condition than their physical condition because if somebody is is saved, then it doesn't matter that they have a paralysis affliction because when they go to heaven, at least they'll have all that fixed. But if they go into hellfire with their paralysis, I don't know that the paralysis will be fixed, but it's far worse than going to heaven. So the Lord is concerned about their spiritual health. Most people today aren't concerned about their spiritual health at all. They'll say like the, I just saw a poll. A lot of people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Well, let me give you a piece of advice. You're all spiritual. Every last human being is spiritual because you have a spirit. And God designed that spirit to interact with him, to know him, to worship him, to love him, to serve him. All of you are spiritual. You may say, well, no, I'm an automaton. I'm a machine. I'm a mathematician. I'm a scientist. You're a spiritual scientist. Your spirit may just be misaligned with where God wants it to be, but it's in there. And... The question is not, am I spiritual? It's where is your spirit going to be in the end of all things? And are you one who loves the Lord and are obedient to him? So the Lord is concerned about that spiritual well-being. I've often said this before, but I'll say it again. We spend billions of dollars and trillions of dollars and you know, open enrollment and all that sort of thing. Why, why don't people open enroll into churches in December by December 15th every year and get with it? Because that's the most important thing. You know, we don't even charge. You can give an offering if you want, but, you know, we spend so much time thinking about our bodies that they're going to be here for 70, 80, 90, 100 years if we're super blessed, that's it. But what about our souls which live forever? Jesus begins then to teach on these subjects in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, there are four blessing statements here, and I've given you a little diagram there that shows the direction of the blessing. Uh, So, for example, in the first one, the poor person is blessed not because he's poor, but because the kingdom of God is his. The hungry person is not blessed because he's hungry and, you know, just that, you know, he's suffering something, but that he will be filled. The blessing is that those who weep will laugh. The blessing is that those who are hated will have great reward 
in heaven. And so you can see because of that, what's coming, there is a blessing in having these circumstances upon you now. Regarding the poor, Jesus refers to those who are poor in spirit. Uh, this is the same as what he says in Matthew 5.33. I don't have time to turn there this morning, but poor in spirit. Perhaps also poor in terms of monetary riches, since the two often but not always go hand in hand. But the fact that he's speaking to his disciples, remember that setting in which he is, his apostles and his disciples and then you know the larger crowd, indicates that he's speaking about spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. Those who are contrite in heart. You know those kind of people? Are you one of those kind of people? The main issue is spiritual poverty. Of course, the Lord is sympathetic to the plight of those who are of the lowest castes of society, but he's not beatifying all those who are monetarily poor. Those who follow him currently possess the kingdom of God. That's why they're blessed. They are citizens, kingdom citizens, awaiting the arrival of the blessings of that kingdom even as they walk through this life. So again, when you read that, don't read it economically or, or with the social gospel or the oppression, uh, oppressed oppressor glasses on that everybody wants to have on today where you just, you know, oh, poor. Oh, okay, that's talking about the rich versus the poor, you know, the 99% and the 1% and all that. No, it's not saying anything about that, really. It's talking about spiritual poverty. You recognize that you're poor, right? God sent his son Jesus so that we who are poor might become rich, rich in spiritual things. The hungry are not those who need more food stamps. They are the ones who mourn over their sin and hunger for righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the shorthand for that. Those who uh, uh, hunger now, verse 21, for you shall be filled. Imagine, if you will, with me for a moment, your own feelings about your sinfulness. You have feelings about that, don't you? And you look at yourself and like the one um, devotional said, you know, looking back in retrospect, you do remember a lot of things that were amiss in 2023, don't you? Sins that you did yesterday and the day before yesterday and the day before that and the interactions that you had with people and all those things. Think about that. You're, if you're a Christian, you're hungering for something better than that. You want righteousness. And the Lord says, if you have that kind of hunger, you will be filled. When? Well, when you are glorified, when you are raptured, when you go to heaven, if you die and, and go to heaven first, and then the rapture, the resurrection happens after that, whatever, you're going to have that, that hunger fulfilled so that you don't think at that time in the future, fast forward your brain all the way 10,000 years from now, you're not going to have that feeling like, man, I am sick of my own sinful nature because it will be gone. Praise God about that for sure. So we'll be filled with goodness and holiness and righteousness, not have that nagging sin nature that tempts us and draws us into sin. 
that's the case, right? We're, we're, we're drawn into sin when we're enticed by our own lusts, not by somebody else making us do that. Thirdly, the third blessing is for those who weep. Those who weep. Well, we do walk through the valley of tears, don't we? Lost loved ones, homes exploding, war, rumors of war, physical disasters, crime, Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus and sin and its effects pressed down upon humanity, causing all the suffering in the world and and all the suffering that you see in the animal kingdom and uh, in the world generally is because of human sin. Those who feel pain, if they walk with the Lord, will in the future experience the opposite of that pain. They will experience joy. Remember Luke 16, this is an interesting little story the Lord told about Abraham. and uh, Abraham was talking to uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And he, he said, but Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, speaking to the rich man, you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. The last of the blessings that the Lord offers to those not only who are poor in spirit, those who hunger for righteousness, those who weep because of the sinful condition of this world and all the devastation that that's wrought, but fourthly, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and they revile you, and cast out your name as evil. Now, this isn't talking about social outcasts or misfits here. This is talking about people who are treated that way. Listen to the end of verse 22. For the Son of Man's sake. For the Son of Man's sake. That is persecution for Christ. Those who believe in Jesus, who are in the world but not of the world, the world hates them, the world thinks that such people are evil, have you heard, you've heard that before, haven't you? People call Christians evil. All the world's problems are because of Christians or religions or, or, or Jews or whatever. You know, the people of the book. That's why all the problems of the world come about. But the Lord counsels that in the future such persecuted ones will rejoice and they'll have a great reward because they will be like the true prophets in the Old Testament who received a great reward after being ignored, rejected, slandered, harmed, killed by their contemporaries. And we can also take comfort because if you're persecuted for the sake of Christ, that's yet more evidence that you really belong to him. Yes? Yeah. So, very good. What's often overlooked in a passage like this, though, is that there are, and this doesn't occur in Matthew's version, but in Luke here, uh, like this, very interesting how Luke lays it out in a parallel fashion. It's easy to overlook the woe passage. We like the blessings. We don't want to hear the woes, though. Just the opposite. And, and the way the Lord teaches them and Luke lays them out, they are exact correspondences. You have the poor and the rich and the hungry and the full and the weeping and the laughing, and you have the hated and the loved. It's interesting. If you just set those two side by side, those two charts that I put, you'll see that. The opposite of promising a blessing is ascribing a woe to somebody. Woe comes from the sound of the word in Greek. Uh, It's hard to say, but it's spelled like O-U-A-I, woe. 
they are going to have a bad outcome in the future, a bad judgment, a curse, a bad eternity. And these, as I said, are easy to overlook because they're unpleasant. Nobody wants to look at themselves in the mirror and see reflected sin. Sometimes theologians even are guilty because they steal blessings from the nation of Israel. And what do they leave the nation of Israel? All the curses. <laughs> we also can steal blessings out of their context and say, oh, I like that. Verses 20 to 23 is very comforting and encouraging and many verses, many sermons preached on the, the Beatitudes and all of that. But you can't leave behind the curses. You've got to read those as well. What, if, if you just ignore the curses, you kind of delete them out of the Bible, you eviscerate the message with, of any sting, of any teeth against evil. So we go through these very briefly. The rich, yes, they are those who are rich with money, but they trust in riches. Remember, 1 Timothy talks about that. Woe to those who trust in their riches. Or the book of James, you know, woe to you rich. You've, you know, taken the wages of the people you should have paid and kept them for yourself. Not because they're rich, but because they're greedy and covetous and don't want to pay. They don't want to help others. These, the rich here, the ones who focus on materialism instead of on God. Now, like the poor, which we talked about a moment ago, this doesn't refer strictly to people who have a lot of money. Let me say it this way, kind of go in the other direction. It might shock you, but there's a corresponding woe for poor people who reject God. You know, you can, you can be poor and that can help you to see your need for God, or you can be poor and you can curse God. Job, remember Job's wife? Curse God and die. You know, he's taken away everything. Well, Job's like, I can't do that. God gave me everything. So the issue is one's relationship with God here. Non-disciples, the Lord is talking about here. Those who are full, they feel like they have no need of anything. And certainly don't concern themselves with their sin. Those who laugh are the ones who are at ease and think they have no need of God. Their life is full of pleasure and entertainment. Their self-sufficiency anesthetizes them to their deadly peril and their true poverty. That's the problem with riches, my friends. That's the problem of living in the United States. He's like, I don't need anything. I just, if I need something, I just put it on the plastic, you know, pay the bill next month, take it out of my bank account, you know. No big deal. Money solves everything. One of our dear friends, uh, you know, he, he was relating traveling in the United States to traveling overseas. Brother Mike, you'll remember this. He would say this. This is Jim. Everything's fixable in America. But when you go overseas, that's not the case. You know, the poverty, perhaps, the unavailability of things. Here, it's everything. You know, we have everything on the shelves. It's, it's kind of, in a sense... It's kind of ridiculous we have so much. You know, people from other countries come here, you just take them to Costco, okay? They'll fall over like the Queen of Sheba and say, the half wasn't told to me of all the material products that they have here in this place. Then there are those who are well spoken of. Woe to you who are rich, you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. 
you know, the movers and shakers, the in, the in crowd. But again, they have no relationship to God. They're just like the false prophets of old. Many of whom had a following and good words spoken about them, but they'll be like the false prophets condemned by God, these movers and shakers, so to speak. So the whole issue, again, is the Lord intends for us to understand that the woes have the built-in idea that the rich, the famous, the joyful, all that, are enjoying those things apart from God. Let me say it this way. We cannot say that every person who has wealth, monetary wealth, is eternally condemned. That same goes for every, every... You can't say that every person who has joy is eternally condemned. Why? Because Christians are supposed to be joyful people, right? Or those who are, uh, you know, full... And, and not hungry in the sense of physical food. Many of us are among the wealthiest people in the world. Many of us, I'm not talking about them out there, I'm not talking about the 1%, I'm talking about Fellowship Bible Church members and attenders. Many of us are the most wealthy people in the world. We should walk with joy, and God has given us our food in due season so that we are full on the food side of the equation. The issue is, are we full on the God side of the equation? Is it the case that we're nourished by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, or are we just nourished by you know, the fattening meals that we have three times a day and the snacks whenever we want them? Are we trusting in God for our provision, or are we trusting in Visa for our provision, or Kroger and Meyer for our provision? Or the logistics system, you know, that gets the trucks to travel and bring all the food. Are we trusting in that? Are we trusting in armies and, you know, horses and chariots and that sort of thing? Are we trusting in the Lord our God? Jesus is pronouncing a woe on those who trust in riches or in themselves, but not in God. Their riches overwhelm any view of God that they should hold the riches and they hold them as if God's out of the picture. Fame is empty and leads nowhere. Joy apart from God is deadly joy. The Laodicean church is an illustration of this. They said, I'm rich. I have need of nothing. Or the rich farmer. Of course, God said to them, look, you don't know that you're wretched and poor and blind and naked. The rich farmer said, you know, what am I going to do? I've got too much stuff. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. Soul, you have laid up many goods for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Both were foolish. The outcome for these atheists, functional atheists, is is very dim. They are living their best life now. The next one will be far worse. They will have hunger and weeping and condemnation like the false prophets. Their comfort, if it's really a comfort, is that they have ease right now. This is their heaven. This is the worst that Christians will experience, has often been said, right? But for the the unbeliever, this is the best that they will experience. Obviously, the Lord is highlighting here the blessedness of the humble. Now, he doesn't explicitly come out and demand this kind of conduct, but obviously he's calling for us to be that way, this humble god dependent kind of way. And we should pray to God to help us today and in these days ahead to recognize our spiritual poverty, to ask him to give us a full-throated hunger for righteousness. 
Do you have an appetite for righteousness or has your appetite kind of been dulled lately? That's a great illustration, by the way. You know, I'm just not that hungry. What do you mean you don't hunger for righteousness? You know, when you're not hungry, what does that mean physically? Probably sick. I mean, I'm not talking about if you've had, you know, too much to eat, you know, half an hour ago. I'm saying if you're just not hungry for days, you're sick. Well, if you're not hungry for righteousness for days, you're spiritually ill. You pray to God to give you that insatiable appetite, which then will be filled with righteousness. And ask Him to sustain you as you weep over things that grieve God until the time of joy comes. And seek to persevere if you suffer persecution, knowing that it's for the Son of Man's sake. If it is that, then it is eternally worthwhile. Pray that you find yourself in the midst of these blessings and far away from these woes that are mentioned by the Lord in His sermon. Let's pray today. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us recognize our spiritual need and help us to await the future blessing that you have for us. Lord, please, may none of the people of Fellowship Bible Church, members or attenders, visitors, those that are young people that haven't yet come to know Christ personally, May none of us fall into the woes here. May you rescue us from that. May you choose us, as it were, to give give grace, to lift us up out of that. Open our eyes that we might see these wonderful things as they are in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.